Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Hello and welcome to Bug Eye's Rock Pop Rambles. I am your host, Kerry, from the band Bug Eye, and I am joined by... Gracie Tukey! Way, it's a Keza and Tukey special. Back by popular demand. <laughs> I, re- I really wish that was true. It's not. Oh. <laughs> you asked for it and we gave it to you, except you didn't ask for it. But we gave but it to you. But here we anyway. are. <laughs> exactly. Can you believe it, Gracie? We're on what are we call in this, like series two of the podcast. Yes, I think we are, aren't we? We've kept this up long enough that we can justify having a series too. It's brilliant, isn't it? It's mental. I'm in shock. Me too. What episode are we on now? I've lost track. I've got no idea. I could have checked. (laughs) So don't know what episode count we're on. I just know we're in series two, which is good enough for me. (laughs) Me too. (laughs) That level of organisation is beyond me, I'm afraid. (laughs) Fair enough. But how have you been, Two Keys? I've been all right, yeah. I've got a fridge full of lager, so I'm uh, happy days. I'm all right. I'm coping, surviving. Is that what? Is that what you're on tonight? You're on the lager. On the old amp still tonight. I, f- I found a, I found a couple at the bottom of my bag. Genuinely, <laughs> I thought I'll have one of them tonight. What do you mean you found a couple at the bottom of your bag? I, I don't know. I was just going through. I haven't left the house in in quite a while for obvious reasons, and so I um, I was just having a little sort out. And I thought, oh, my bag's getting a bit full. I'll, I'll clear it out. Two two cans of Amstel at the bottom. <laughs> <laughs> How long have they been in there for? God knows. God knows, mate. But there we go. That was a nice little surprise. So that's the highlight of my week. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, there is nothing better than finding surprise beer, to be fair. No, it's not as good as money. You know, when you find a tenner that's knocking true. around in a j- jacket that's pocket true. or something. Have you ever intentionally hidden money in the hope that you'll forget about it and find it later. I haven't, no. I don't think so. Have you not? Well, I've if I have, I've forgotten before. and I've not found it. <laughs> well, you've got that to look forward to. <laughs> yeah. <then. laughs> so, yeah. That's the that's the exciting kind of life that uh, I've led. Just, you know, hi, hi, hide in a fiver so I can find it later. What's the highlight of your week then, Keza? What's the highlight of my week? Yeah. Good question. I don't know. Oh, <laughs> Sad come to say, on. There's not, a, there's not a huge number of highlights these days. Have you had any exciting <laughs> meals? Some decent takeaways? I made I made a pretty decent chilli con carne. Oh, that sounds nice. Veggie or? I like, uh, not veggie on this occasion. It would Ooh. often be veggie. But there was, um, it's a long story, but there was a mince left over from Christmas. And so I needed to use it up. Fair enough. It had been, it had been in the freezer. If I'd kept it since Christmas, that would be like, a long time at this point um <laughs> so uh yeah there was that um and yeah I think that's that's about it really if I'm being totally honest any it's decent... not it's not a time full of highlights right now it isn't is it to be honest any decent tv I know you've been watching a lot of trash I get the odd little message <laughs> from you big big fan <laughs> of uh of watching a bit of trash I'm not gonna lie what have I watched that's actually been good I watched uh Boy Erased the film Boy Erased oh, yeah. that was really good I need to watch that sad but good yeah this is the problem I feel like everything that's like good at the moment to watch is quite sad and I'm just not here for it so I'm all about the trash yeah 
that just makes me laugh and I know it's terrible and that I'm wasting hours and hours of my life but I watch it anyway no I agree it's um the last thing you need is a tearjerker at the minute I know I just want mindless entertainment the less (laughs) I have to think and if I even just hate everyone on screen honestly the better (laughs) at least at least you feel something Kerry Uh, I feel like we should move on from this yes. rather depressing conversation yeah. about my life. Yes, let's, let's crack on, shall we? <laughs> let's get on with the podcast. That is what we're here for after all. <laughs> um, so we made a little plan, didn't we, about what we were going to talk about we did. this week? We did, very organised. <clears throat> and uh, we had sort of a loose theme to sort of base what we were going to talk about around kind of like the counterculture of the 1960s. Mm-hmm. Um, so I decided that I would talk about Woodstock. Nice. And I've got sort of like some interesting facts and some little stories and stuff from Woodstock. Uh, what did you decide to do? So I'm going to talk about a rock festival um, that happened in Mexico in 1971. I'd never heard of it, Ooh. but it was it was quite important for reasons you will find out about I'm gonna say that I know nothing about that didn't know <laughs> there was anything along those lines but that sounds really interesting so we've got kind of a countercultural festival yeah kind of thing yep. so at a time when we're all really depressed as all the festivals are getting cancelled we're gonna remind you about festivals yeah, all the fun you're missing out on. <laughs> yeah because <laughs> uh, we're mean like that but um you know you chose to listen so it's your fault alienate the audience so like it gets out <laughs> it's a risky it's a risky strategy it but it's the one I, it's the one i seem to have chosen to go with <laughs> oh dear go on then here we are all right so <laughs> uh we got some new music as well Ooh, we got new music yes, too have. um so i have got uh, the new single copy from one of our favourites, Berries, um, today, which is a super nice. awesome, amazing song. Really Very is. excited to play. Uh, and what have you got for us? So I've got the new single from a band called Swine Tax, which I'm looking Ooh. forward to playing. Yeah. Cool. Haven't heard of them before. No, I hadn't until a few days ago, but I'm, I'm very glad I discovered them. So, yeah. Well, I am excited to, to hear them. See what that's all about. All right, so counterculture, sixties. Yes. So, what was the counterculture of the sixties? Am I just throwing words out there? Do they mean anything? So, it was basically an anti-establishment cultural phenomenon that developed throughout much of the Western world between the mid sixties and the mid seventies, and the movement was fueled by sort of a number of social issues. So you had the civil rights movement, opposition to the Vietnam War, issues relating to human sexuality with kind of birth control, women's rights, gay liberation um, and experimentation with psychoactive drugs. So there was sort of just this whole everything sort of came to a head, I feel, Mm -hmm. around that time. It was kind of a, a perfect storm of all these issues kind of coming to the forefront sort of disaffected youth, Mm -hmm. you know, people wanting to make change and and wanting to make things better. Um, And I feel like an environment like that always lends itself, doesn't it, to sort of culture and art and music Mm -hmm. and lots of great things come out of it. So one of the great things that that came out of this environment was Woodstock, which was a music festival, which was held uh, from August 15th to 18th uh, in 1969. 
So it was the full name of it was Woodstock Music and Art Fair, which I feel makes has a very different makes it seem different it to does, what it was. It does, doesn't it? I didn't know that. Yeah, it really does. Like Woodstock Music and Art Fair sounds to me now like a little local yeah, craft fair. It really <laughs> Do you does. know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, <clears throat> and it was billed as an Aquarian exposition, three days of peace and music. So the festival was the brainchild of four men, all aged 27 or younger, who were looking for an investment opportunity. So they were John Roberts, Joel Rosenman, Artie Kornfeld and Michael Lang. So Lang had organised the successful Miami Music Festival in 1968. So we had a bit of experience with the whole festival thing. Um, Kornfeld was the youngest vice president at Capitol Records. Um, and Roberts and Rosenman were New York entrepreneurs who were involved in building a Manhattan recording studio um, around that time. So the four of them basically formed Woodstock Ventures Inc. and decided to host a music festival. Um, so interesting fact about Woodstock number one, it did not occur in Woodstock. Oh, really? Well, where, <laughs> so there where is... did it occur, Keza? Well, I'm going to tell you, Gracie. <laughs> so, <laughs> so there is a Woodstock, New York, like Woodstock is a place. Yeah. Um, but it actually occurred on Max Yazger's dairy farm in Bethel, New York, which is 40 miles southwest of Woodstock. Um, it was initially supposed to happen in Woodstock, but they were denied permission to stage it there. So despite of this, they still chose to keep the name Woodstock because it had sort of a... Um, a reputation of hipness kind of associated with the town because yeah. Bob Dylan and several other musicians oh, right. were known to live there. Um, and it had also been an artist retreat since the turn of the century. So it's sort of like they wanted to do it there. And even like the idea of it was sort of inspired by there right. because the kind of music and musicians that were there, yeah. but then they weren't allowed to do it there. So they moved it, but they kept the name. I wonder <clears> how <throat> many people missed out because they went to the wrong place. <laughs> well, lots <laughs> A lot of people did miss out, but not necessarily because they went to the wrong place. Oh, shit. Because it, uh, it attracted an audience of more than 400,000 people. All right. Now, the numbers, I've seen different numbers on different things yeah. I've looked at. But it seems like it was basically around half a million people who actually made it to the festival. And to give a bit of context, Glastonbury is only around 200,000 people. I was going to say, I'm pretty sure Glastonbury's like half that. Exactly. That's so nuts. that's like mad numbers that's of people. Huge. That is mad, isn't it? To descend on a place. And they, the organisers initially expected and planned for 50,000 people. Oh, shit, seriously? <laughs> so, yeah. So it was intended to be a ticketed for-profit event for around 50,000 people. That was what it was supposed to be. Now, the ticket sales were limited to record stores in the greater New York City area or by mail via a post office box at the Radio City Station post office located in Midtown Manhattan. And the tickets for the three-day event cost $18 in advance and $24 at the gate, which apparently would be equivalent to about $130 and $170 today. Because it sounds like super nothing, right, yeah, to us yeah, now. Yeah, but equivalently, it was still quite a lot. 
Um, so for this event, they so I'm not really sure. They really failed. Basically, it was all very disorganized in the planning of this festival in yeah. general, right? They didn't do a great job. So already for what they planned to be a 50,000 person event, they managed to sell around 186,000 advance tickets. <laughs> yeah. So already, <clears throat> you know, yeah. <laughs> a bit of a mess happening. So... Then obviously with the venue and they had sort of their lineup secured, um, they then, you know, turned to logistics. So fencing, entrance gates, ticket booths needed that needed to be set up, um, former's pavilion, concession stands, bathroom facilities, medical tents, all the stuff you need, right? Yeah. To make a festival work. Mm-hmm. So the problem was <clears throat> when it came to the festival, um, people started arriving a few days ahead of when the concert was supposed to start. Yeah. And the fencing and the gates and the ticket booths and everything weren't ready yet. They hadn't set them up yet. So according to Lang in an interview with The Telegraph, he said, you do everything you can to get the gates and the fences finished, but you have your priorities. People are coming and you need to be able to feed them and take care of them and give them a show. So you have to prioritize. Yeah. So basically people were arriving. They didn't have the fences up. They didn't have the ticket booths up and people are just there mm-hmm. on the land, basically. So they had no efficient way to charge concert goers. So they just decided to make it a free event at that point. Oh, so they just let everyone in? Well, yeah, because they couldn't There's stop nothing them. You they can were do there already. Really, if there's that many people, like, <laughs> can you really? Pe- pe- people started arriving in you know huge numbers before they'd set anything up, um, and yeah, they just weren't prepared for what was basically half a million people that turned up. And I saw stuff as well claiming that it was actually more like a million people who tried to show oh, up. Oh, really? Yeah, so apparently, like I said, I don't, these are just, yeah. I saw different numbers on different things, but it, see, the sort of vibe I got from looking at a few different things, that it was something more like a million people who planned and who wanted to go and attempted to make the journey to go. Yeah. But with the, but with this huge onslaught of people arriving at the, this like rural festival site, yeah, um, they obviously blocked up all of the roads and for miles around Yazga's farm, um, there were just abandoned vehicles lining the streets, clogging intersections, angled into people's lawns. So I think uh, lots of people just couldn't get there because it was also blocked up. Yeah. So I think a lot of people gave up. So there were around half a million who managed to get there. And I think a lot more on top of that who tried and failed to get there. That's mad, isn't it? A million people. It was just like, yeah, just the numbers. That it, I mean, I suppose Glastonbury would attra- attract that sort of number, wouldn't it? Yeah. It's just that not, yeah. they don't have the capacity for it. No, nowhere near. It's just so, like, just, you can't even like comprehend that many people. Yeah, exactly. So, <clears throat> yeah, so the Woodstock audience was a di- was diverse and it was a reflection of kind of like the rapidly changing times. You had some people who were hippies who, you know, felt alienated by society, steeped in materialism. Um, in 1969, the country was deep into the controversial Vietnam War mm-hmm. and it was a conflict that many young people were very much against. Um, and it was the era of the civil rights movement, all this stuff I sort of mentioned at the start, a period of great unrest and protest. So Woodstock was an opportunity for people to escape into music and to spread a message of unity and peace. Um, So there are also a lot of kids there, apparently, as in sort of like 15 to 20 year olds, you know, from Long Island. Yeah, you see a lot of your footage, you see a lot, I've seen exactly right. stuff, it's really young audience. Yeah, if you look at the footage and if you look at the pictures and so on, they're mostly really, really young, like 15 to 20 year olds. Mm -hmm. And they turned up very, very ill-equipped to basically spend... (laughs) 
a weekend roughing it in the mountains. <laughs> Very few brought in, brought any food. They didn't bring a change of clothes or even like enough money to get back home. So reports from the time talk about how apparently area residents, despite the fact that, you know, their town has been like overrun with these insane numbers of people that have left their cars everywhere, kind of trash and everything to some extent. But even so, upon hearing that the kids at the concert were hungry, cold, thirsty, they sort of came to their rescue with sandwiches, milk, water, and even opened up their homes to some who needed hot showers and stuff like that. That's lovely. I, mean, I, I, wish, yeah. I wish that festivals still had that vibe. I know, right? Like, I mean, it's interesting, isn't it? Because I think that we view Woodstock through really rose-coloured glasses. Yeah. I think that that's, I think that's very true to some extent. Yeah. But at the same time, they were really not prepared for these numbers of people. No. So basically to add to the problems they had with, you know, this, they, with the park, with the cars everywhere and all of this, they had, um, difficulty in dealing with the large crowds. They had recent rains, um, that caused muddy roads and fields. So it was an absolute mud pit yeah. basically, because it was just raining, um, on and off throughout the whole weekend. Um, the facilities were not equipped to provide sanitation or first aid for the number of people attending. Um, and yeah, basically hundreds of thousands of people just found themselves in a struggle against bad weather, food shortages, poor sanitation, um, to the extent that Sullivan County declared the festival was a state of emergency. Really? Um, yeah. And the New York governor, Nelson Rockefeller, um, was so alarmed by the crowds that he wanted to send in the military, but he was talked out of it by the organizer, John Roberts. That's nuts. I didn't know that. Yeah. So it was sort of like, I mean, it was kind of a huge mess. Yeah. But dis- but despite this, the overall vibe was still really harmonious. Yeah, yeah. Like imagine, imagine if that situation happened at a festival here everyone would be like kicking off yeah <laughs> like, yeah they're all stone they're all stone mate they didn't give a shit <laughs> well lots of people do attribute it to exactly that <laughs> lots of people honestly lots of people attribute the lack of violence to the large number of psychedelic drugs being used but then at the same time i feel like drugs at festivals now would have the opposite effect <laughs> you know yeah what I yeah mean? Abs- yeah the drugs that are knocking around now are completely different i mean what what so i know like lsd story. and weed is like mm-hmm. associated with counterculture mm-hmm. but what other sort of stuff was like around at that time do you know uh, mescaline that's what one i was going to i'm going to mention a bit later in kind of a bit of a story about one of the Ooh, bands sorry sorry Kesha. It was another no it's no <laughs> mescaline is another hallucinogenic i think but yeah it was very much like hallucinogenics but I think it was a vibe of people being like blissed out rather than people like getting on it like yeah 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 they are today you know yeah for sure um so yeah it's pretty amazing how peace peaceful it was given the number of people the conditions involved um and there were two recorded fatalities but out of half a million people at a festival yeah in those conditions yeah that's crazy that it's kind of crazy that only two people died. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, definitely. I mean, because it'd be interesting to see what the figures are for festivals that happen now, especially with pe- the sort of drugs people- that are going around as well. Well, cause, yeah, people do definitely die at festivals. I think most festivals have at least a death. Yeah, they must do. A lot of the time. I, I don't know exactly the numbers. But yeah, at Woodstock, one of the deaths was to do with insulin usage. And uh, I shouldn't laugh. But the other was caused... <laughs> The other was caused when a tractor ran over someone sleeping in a nearby hayfield. Oh, what a way to go. <laughs> what a way to go. Like, it's not funny, but... 
I just hope that they were so off their tits they didn't know what was going on anyway. And again, like, of the ways you would expect people to die <laughs> at that festival, yeah, that neither, it, neither yeah. of those are really the ones you would choose. <laughs> no, I wouldn't have guessed that in a million years. <laughs> no. Um, so, yeah, so there were 32 acts that played over three days. And again, I was just thinking about the numbers, like, compared to the number of artists that like play at something like Glastonbury yeah. and the number of people attend, it was only 32 artists yeah. that drew this like insane number of people. And to be fair, they were a lot of like, it was a large number of like the biggest artists of the time, right? Yeah, there was some huge names there, weren't there? Yeah, but even so, but also some huge names that were, were missing that I had assumed had played there that I didn't realise hadn't. Um, I think the Beatles, I don't think I necessarily thought had played there, but they were obviously the biggest band yeah. at the time and and they didn't play at it. Um, and Bob Dylan didn't, which I didn't realise. I sort of assumed that Bob Dylan did, but yeah, he didn't actually play at it. Yeah, you would think he, he was there, yeah. I, I can't remember what the reason was. He was. It was something to do with him being booked for the Isle of Wight Festival around the same sort of time or something. Yeah. It was the reason why he didn't play. Um, How many stages were there? Do you know? Um. I'm not 100% sure, actually. Like, it seems from from the billing that I've got, it sort of feels like there was only really one, but I'm not sure that that's true. Yeah, because... Maybe I'm... it was... Maybe it's... Well, it says that... Yeah, I don't know, to be honest. <laughs> I have to look into that, Keza. Yeah, I've, I should have that information having just looked into it, right? <laughs> but, I, but I don't. Um, so I think it was possibly only one. I think I might not be wrong in saying I that. Think you're I think right. it was possibly only so one ha- stage. Because how many days was it over? Three days. Yeah, that was probably about right, isn't it? Yeah. So the festival was opened on the Friday at 5.07pm, which I can't help but think is probably much later than it was supposed to start, <laughs> um, by Richie Havens, um, was the first performer. Um, and he, was mo- he wasn't supposed to be the opening um performance um but he was moved up after Sweetwater was stopped by police en route to the festival and other artists were delayed on the freeway (laughs) so artists were struggling to get there um and in fact had to be lots of them had to be flown in by helicopter in the end because all the roads were blocked and they couldn't get in any other way um so also so yeah on the Friday you had Richie Havens um Satchid oh dear I've not practiced this name uh Sacha Dananda Saraswati, um, I want to say, who gave like the opening speech and invocation for the festival. Then you had Sweetwater, Bert Summer, Tim Hardin, Ravi Shankar. Oh, nice. Um, yeah, who was obviously, it was a big moment for sort of world music. Yeah, definitely. Um, in the US, I think, when he, when he performed there. Um, Melanie, um, Arlo Guthrie, and then the first uh, day was closed out by Joan Baez. Uh, who went on at 12.55 a.m., so just before 1 a.m. Um, I've seen Like, her. all the timings are... <clears throat> yeah, all the... You've seen her live, yeah. right? For real? Yeah. In person live? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's cool. A few years ago. Brilliant, isn't she? Yeah, she's amazing. Um, so when she performed at Woodstock, she was six months pregnant. Um, and due to the roads being blocked, um, she was flown in by helicopter um, along with Janis Joplin. So they, they flew oh, in by helicopter Janis together. Joplin. Yeah, it was raining when she played, as it was for many of the artists. Um, 
and I, I managed to find a few sort of interviews with artists about their performances. Um, so she said about it, um, it was my turn and I went out on stage and there was a guy stark naked way up at the top of the audience. It seemed like it was slanted uphill. As I picture him now, I picture this gangly guy with flowers in his hair or at least in his hand and he's dancing through this crowd towards the stage. I think I was singing I Shall Be Released and by the time he reached the stage, I was through. (laughs) Which I just thought was like a nice image of like the situation. (laughs) Um, Yeah, and she also mentioned something about um, being worried about eating any of the food backstage because loads of it had been like laced with LSD and obviously she was pregnant. (laughs) I can imagine, yeah. I didn't even think of that. So um, yeah, I think being there, being being pregnant was quite an experience. Yeah. Oh my god. <laughs> um. So then on the Saturday, they started at twelve thirty p.m. So I feel like they were a bit more on track. Um. They had Quill, um, County Joe McDonald, Country Joe McDonald, um, who was apparently brought in for an unscheduled emergency solo performance <laughs> because Santana weren't ready to take the stage yet. <laughs> really? Like, you just get a sense of how like disorganized and yes. like what a mess it was. So Santana went on stage at two o'clock in the afternoon. Um, at this time that when they played Woodstock, they hadn't yet released their first album. So they weren't like a huge band at this point. Um, and they were basically told that this concert would change their lives. Um, now, when they landed, one of the first people that Carlos Santana saw was Jerry Garcia from the Grateful Dead, um, who offered him mescaline. So... When this happened, it was about 12.30 in the afternoon. And at this point, they thought they wouldn't be playing until like two in the morning because they arrived and the Grateful Dead were like, oh, it's a mess. And they thought they were going to be on like two after the Grateful Dead. And (laughs) so they wouldn't be on until like two in the morning. Um, So he thought that he could get away with like taking mescaline now and then it would be like enough time until they played (laughs) that he'd like be all right to play. But then two hours after taking it. um, So then this was just this is a like quote from him uh from this interview i saw so he said two hours after i took it there was a face in my face that said you need to go on right now otherwise you're not going to play by this time i was really really on it you know i just held on to my faith and what my mum taught me i asked over and over just help me stay in tune and on time (laughs) and basically yeah he was hallucinating through their whole set oh i'm gonna have to watch that set now yeah he talks about that yeah in, in the interview, they, they like ask him, like, oh, were you hallucinating in the set? And he's like, yeah, you can tell. <laughs> he what? was like, he says, he says something like, you can tell by the way that I'm like, right, like, wrestling my guitar yeah. almost. Yeah. Like, yeah. Well, I've, I struggle after a couple of lagers, so I can't imagine <laughs> how that would feel. Let alone <laughs> off your face on mescaline. <laughs> I've never heard of mescaline. Is that just sort of disappeared? I've heard of it. I don't, I don't know anything about it, but I've heard of it. Mm. Sounds brilliant. I think, I think yeah. <laughs> I have to get hold of some of that. <laughs> get on, get on some of that for the next bug eye tour. <laughs> um, so yeah, so on the Saturday after him came uh, John Sebastian, Keith Hartley Band, the Incredible String Band. Um, they had been supposed to play uh, the first day following Ravi Shankar, but they refused to play during the rainstorm, so they were moved. Um, Canty Mountain, who again. Um, were not a big band at that point. It was only their third ever gig as a band. Um, And then came the Grateful Dead at 10.30. Um, And then just to sort of like speak to the 
what it was like with the rain and kind of what the situation was. So Bob Weir from The Grateful Dead um, said in an interview, it was raining, it was raining toads when we played. The rain was part of our nightmare. I'm not sure if that's a, a typing mistake or if that was what he said. I feel like it could go either way. Raining toads. Raining toads. It could be raining loads or he could have said it was raining toads. I feel like that could be a toads. thing, right? See if it's a thing. <laughs> raining toads. Raining I read frogs. That. Is a thing. Maybe you got maybe you got it mixed up. I feel. Do you know what I mean? I feel like he could have said that, or I could have mistyped that, but I'm not sure which it is. Um, I'm going to go with it that he said it's raining toads. So uh, it was raining toads when we played. The rain was part of our nightmare. The other part was our sound man who decided that the ground situation on the stage was all wrong. It took him about two hours to change it, which held up the show. He finally got it set the way he wanted it, but every time I touched my instrument, I got a shock. The stage was wet and the electricity was coming through me. I was conducting. Touching my guitar and the microphone was nearly fatal. There was a great big blue spark about the size of a baseball and I got lifted off my feet and sent back eight or ten feet to my amplifier. Oh my God. So people were like on stage, it was soaking wet. They're getting like electric shocks. <laughs> They're all off their face. Oh <laughs> like... my God. Um, and apparently their set ended um, after a 50 minute version of Turn On Your Love Light <laughs> 50 minutes? 50? <laughs> yeah, 50 minutes, yeah, 55-0 <laughs> their whole set was about it was 10.30 till sort of midnight so they played for like an hour and a half and so yeah, a good 50 minutes of it was one song 50 minutes of that was one song <laughs> so yeah after them came uh, Credence Clearwater Revival, Janis Joplin, um, Sly and the Family Stone, The Who, um, and Jefferson Airplanes. That was a pretty big day. Yeah, huge. Of um, some pretty immense performers. Um, I'm not telling stories about all of them just because we'll be here forever. So I just sort of picked a choice few. So then Sunday, last day of the festival, um, started off with Joe Cocker and the Grease Band. Um, and after Joe Cocker set, a thunderstorm disrupted the event for several hours and they had to fully stop for a few hours. Um, so yeah, so on Sunday, Joe Cocker played at like two, two in the afternoon and then the next band didn't come on until 6.30 in the evening. So they're... What? So, like, so how, so what, he was on for ages or? <laughs> oh, he, was no, 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 so... <laughs> so, uh, so yeah, so basically the timings were all over the place. So I didn't say in like, the previous day, all those bands were basically playing all night. Mm. So like Jeff Jefferson Airplane, who finished um, Saturday's lineup, went on at eight o'clock in the morning on Sunday. Oh my God. So, yeah. So they were playing all night. Um, and then Joe Cocker went on at two, finished at 325, but then thunderstorms disrupted the events for several hours and they had to shut right, everything down okay. for a bit. <clears throat> um, so then Country Joe and the Fish came on at 6.30, followed by 10 Years After, The Band, um, Johnny Winter, Blood, Sweat and Tears, Crosby, Stills, Nash and Young, Paul Butterfield Blues Band, Shanana, and then finally um, the, sh- the whole festival was closed out by Jimi Hendrix, um, who ended up playing at 9am on Monday. <laughs> so obviously it was supposed to finish on sunday yeah, right ran over but Jimi hendrix ended up closing the festival at 9 a.m on monday so his was like the most anticipated performance of, of yeah. the festival right it was the one yeah. everyone was like dying to see but by the time he and his newly formed band gypsy sun and rainbow started their two-hour set at nine in the morning on monday 
the half a million person audience was down to roughly 40,000 people. What, when Jimi Hendrix came on? Yeah. Well, it so, was, by that point, everyone's exhausted. They've yeah. been at this festival with like no facilities. I for, know, but I think oh, you, you know, just have to power on through. Mind you, I've never taken that many drugs, so I don't know. How <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, so by, the, so by the time he came on, I mean, 40,000 people were still a huge audience, right? But compared to the 10 times that yeah. that had been there... So what? Uh, at what huge... point was this in his career? Because I don't really um, like. Do you know what I mean? I don't know. I mean, he was huge it... at this point. I know. Like, you... It's not. Yeah. Because he's he's onto his new band, so it's not because he was. It was like the Jimi Hendrix experience, right? Mm-hmm. Was sort of like his band before. Because mm-hmm. I think he he was wrongly introduced as that, and then this was his like What's next it? incarnation of his band that right. was um, Gypsy Sun and Rainbows. Right. So I feel like <clears> it's got to be. Yeah latish in his uh in his career yeah um so again information i should probably know better than i do um so for those that stay i could say for those few that stayed it's only a few (laughs) compared to like the huge numbers that were there for the whole festival but um those who stayed uh for this finale kind of witnessed one of the most memorable and legendary performances of like the entire decade right Mm mm-hmm so the performance included the iconic moment when um, Hendrix played his psychedelic version of the US national anthem, the Star Spangled Banner. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, his masterful instrumental rendition of the anthem managed to convey the feeling of turmoil that gripped America at the time. Kind of nightmare visions of war and destruction swept over the crowd before he brought it back to earth with a peaceful reading of the final lines of the piece. Um, it was truly an astonishing performance um, that sort of has become one of the most enduring of all the sort of moments of uh, memories of Woodstock. Yeah. It's like such an iconic thing yeah. that really felt like it, it captured the whole mood mm-hmm. of the moment. Um, so the festival left its promoters basically bankrupt. Yeah, pretty end. much. <laughs> um, however, um, they had held on to the film and recording rights um, and... So they more than made their money back when Michael Wadley's documentary film Woodstock um, in 1970 became a, a huge smash hit. Yeah. So, you know, that's why we've seen a lot of these performances. Yeah. And we sort of know about, you know, you can watch most of the performances as part of that film. Yeah. Um, and um, yeah, obviously the sort of legend of, of Woodstock has become enshrined sort of in American history hasn't it we've all heard of it it's sort of this monumental thing that happened um so on the site now um in 2006 Bethelwood Centre for the Arts opened on the hill where the Woodstock Music Festival took place um and today it hosts outdoor concerts in its beautiful pavilion um and there's also sort of a museum about the 60s on the site and I quite liked this um sort of description of Woodstock to finish off with um, from Max Yazga, whose farm it was. Um, So addressing the audience on day three, he said, you've proven something to the world. The important thing that you've proven to the world is that half a million kids, and I call you kids because I have children who are older than you are, (laughs) a half a million young people can get together and have three days of fun and music and have nothing but fun and music and God bless you for it. Ah, that's nice. Which I thought was just a nice. That's sort lovely. Of nice way to round that off, Keza. Summing it up. Um, so yeah, I mean, it's crazy. Like we can't imagine nothing like that would be allowed to happen now. No. Do you know what I mean? No, not at all. And I'm really glad that you've 
you chose Woodstock because it's one of those things that obviously I knew about. But I was thinking about it earlier. I was like, actually, I don't really know that much about it other than, you know, when yeah. it was and that it was a huge moment in like, you know, the counterculture. But that's it. Like, that's it. it. You sort of like, you feel like you have this image of it in your head, right? Mm-hmm. Like, you feel like you know what it is. This whole like, yeah, hippies, 60s, summer of peace and love. Like, I don't know. Do you know what I mean? You sort of have just this idea of it. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it was interesting to take a bit of a a bit of a deeper dive into it and sort of understand a little bit more of, of what went on and interesting to learn. It was basically a huge mess <laughs> yeah. in terms of like organization. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But that it the sort of I suppose, but despite of that, it kind of didn't matter because the spirit the spirit of community around it. Yeah. And it's that thing, right, at festivals where when it rains and it's muddy and ho- and it's kind of horrible in a way, but it also sort of brings everyone together in a way. Yeah. And that happened there as well. Yeah. Um, so in, in a weird sort of way, the adverse conditions did even more to just bring everyone together and create this really special moment. Yeah. You know? It's interesting as well, you're talking about it. There are a few parallels with, with what I'm going to talk about. So, yes, I enjoyed that, Keza. Exciting. Love a good link. Yes, me too. Thanks, Keza. That was great. I love that. Cool. You're welcome. <laughs> um, <laughs> just for you, Gracie. Cheers, just mate. for you too, Keith. Um, all right. Well, before we make those links and parallels, yes. should we play some new music? Yes, let's do. All right, then. So, Keza, my new music for this week is a band called Swine Tax. Um, they are a four-piece from Newcastle. I saw we got quite a few mutual friends on Facebook. Some of the, you know, when we played Middlesbrough, the last gig we played before lockdown. Oh yeah, yeah. A few of the, a few of the Middlesbrough gang, I noticed. Big, are they? They're, they're big swine, yeah. swine tax fans, are they? Yeah, got some connect- which is a nice little got some link. connections in there. Yeah, so Swine Tax, great band. Um, they released their single Johnny on the fourth of December last year, I think. Yeah, I think so. It was sometime so- around the end of last year, I think. So, yeah, this is Johnny.
that was Johnny by Swine Tax. So the band um, talked a little bit about what the single was about. So I'll just read out what they said. So Johnny is about someone that lives with an addiction and it's told from their perspective with fractured bits of conversation. The song's cool groove and uneasy mood is a reflection of their state of mind. We were inspired musically by the jam-based approach of artists such as Clinic, Can and The Velvet Underground. Though predictably, it sounds quite unlike those bands. <laughs> I love that. I love the. I love quoting influencers and then saying, "But we don't sound anything like." <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and I love it when people drop the Velvet Underground because I'm like, literally every band since the Velvet Underground, you could trace back to them, couldn't you? Really. <laughs> I mean, that's that's fair, though, isn't it? It's fair. It is um, really fair. I really liked that song. Yeah, me um, too. I thought it was great. It's got a really cool kind of post-punk garage rock kind of vibe yeah um which i'm really into um like fast and upbeat um yeah big fan yeah want to see him next time next time we make it all the way up to newcastle yeah me too i was just thinking that that'd be a cool band to yeah to need to need to make some way. new friends we do looks like they've been getting you know picked up by a lot of radio on radio one and all sorts of exciting places as well so they're definitely one to watch so i reckon Got to go track them down. Definitely. Right then, Keza. So, I feel like I've got a bit of a tough act to follow there. That was a... Uh... <laughs> I mean, that's how I like to set them up, you know, Gracie. Yes. Oh, a bit nervous. Got to give, got give, nervous got, got to give you something, <laughs> got to give you something to aim for. <laughs> you have. Right. So, I'm going to also talk about festival. Uh, this was the Avandero Fest- Rock Festival that took place in Mexico on September the 11th, 1971, which is also known as the Mexican Woodstock. Ah, uh, linkage to the max. Yes. So uh, I really did have to do quite a bit of research on this because it was difficult to find anything written on it, probably for reasons I'll discuss later. And also a lot of the stuff out there is in Spanish, obviously. Um, there are a couple of... Do- and last last time I checked, you're not fluent in Spanish. No, definitely not. I've, I've tried my best. Do you know, do you know any Spanish? Uh, not really. T- I'm terrible with Spanish, actually. French, I'm p- pretty good at French. I'll say that. I know a few few words from from school i know i'm trying to, I'm, I'm trying to think if i know any spanish but honestly least navidad it's <laughs> about all i know I, i'm terrible but i've really tried with the, some of the pronunciations here so I, I hope i get it right i'm sure you will uh, listeners feel free to correct me um yes so um yeah so everything that's already written on it is mostly in spanish and there are a couple of documentaries on youtube but again they're in spanish so eventually I, I went, I searched my university's online database and I found um, a chapter on it in a book called The Rise of the Mexican Counterculture. So Interesting. most of the information that I've got is from that book. There, there were a couple of websites that I found, but yeah, most of the stuff I'm going to talk about today is from that book. Um, I've got to say, Gracie, I'm really excited for this. Oh, you? Re- oh, God, I haven't yeah. built it up too much. <laughs> I'm really, I'm really looking forward to it. Like, I know, I, you know, I know lots about sort of, you know, the counterculture in the US and the UK, um, but I'm really interested to hear about it sort of from a, a different perspective. Well, this is what I was going for because I, I thought we should, yeah, we should try something that perhaps no one would have heard of because I certainly yeah. hadn't. So Mexico was the first Latin American country to present its own rock music festival. 
Um, cool. There had been a movement building in Mexico a few years previous to the festival called, um, and I hope I get this right, La Onda Chicana, right? So this was mm-hmm. like a multidisciplinary artistic movement created by Mexican artists. It started with the importation of American and British rock and roll into Mexican culture. And then the youth of Mexico began to take inspiration from like the social activism of Western countries that was going on around this time, like you were talking about earlier. Um, And then the Mexican hippie movement sort of grew out of this. And then this expanded to like the entire country, um, as well as parts of the US. And then by around 1969, the year of Woodstock, um, a new wave of Mexican rock music began to emerge. So it sort of fused Mexican music with foreign music and then a bit of political protest in there as well. And then that's what became known as La Onda Chicana. Cool. So <clears throat> this new movement, as it, as it grew, it was sort of probed for, probed for commercial opportunities. So there was a businessman, I can't remember his name now, just so you know someone, he worked for an, adver- an advertising firm which managed the Coca-Cola account in Mexico. Um, and he was interested in this new movement um, for commercial reasons. And there was also some powerful political interest in it as well, which we'll talk about later. So they saw essentially the commercial success of Woodstock. Yeah. And they saw this, they, they thought a festival was a good idea like a good way to promote Mexico because they saw that right. Britain, America, and Germany, uh, places like that had bands that were international hits and Mexico kind of wanted the same thing. So they kind of, yeah, it sounds like they sort of took something that was like this countercultural movement, right? And tried to use it for propaganda almost. Yeah, exactly. Exactly that. Yeah. So initially it was supposed to be a sideshow to an annual road derby which was about two hours' drive from Mexico City. So it sort of seemed to not be taken too seriously to begin with. Like, the organisers hired, like, really poor sound systems. The bands didn't really get paid properly. So a bit like you were talking about Woodstock, it was a, it was sort of a bit of a shambles in lots of ways. Yeah. But then the news of the festival began to spread, um, like Woodstock. Um it became and then it became more successful as the festival went on and the environment became increasingly difficult to control so i really don't know if i've got, if i'm pronouncing this right but i'm going to give it a go anyway so the etavria regime um had to put extra measures in place to control it so they feared that student protesters might turn up. So they had rules in place like student protesters aren't allowed to take microphones to make statements. Access to microphones is under watch by four armed guards. You have to identify oh yourself before you go on stage, etc. They even had the army nearby. So there was a thousand soldiers with machine guns that milled around the perimeter of the concert grounds, although actually no like violent incidents were reported. But wow, yeah, that's the... Now it's suddenly, it's gone from being like Woodstock to sort of being the opposite (laughs) of Woodstock all of a sudden, right? Yes. So the regime at the time was obviously really repressive, right? Mm. So, yeah, as the festival went on and they realised that it was actually going to be really popular, they started to try and control the environment a little bit more. So, like, the distribution of literature and things like that was prohibited. So it was really strict. Wow. Um, 
and sounds like very anti what the music that was being performed there was all about exactly yeah exactly this is that's an interesting point right and I'll come back to that later because it's one of the interesting things about this for me anyway so what actually happened at the festival so nothing really terrible happened um like no one was injured despite the fact that there were like you know a thousand soldiers there um but there was a huge backlash so there were loads of nudists, the sort of things you would expect at like Woodstock. So lots of nudists, who were mostly men, obviously. As <laughs> <laughs> um, a 16-year-old girl who did initiate a strip tease on top of a lighting platform. And the right. sort of Mexican equivalent of Rolling Stone magazine published a photo with the caption, wow, that chick really caught the vibes. Oh um, <laughs> but the mainstream press focused on it as like a means of highlighting the degenerate moral state of Mexico's rock culture. And later she was actually diagnosed by the attorney general's office as suffering a severe problem of adaptation occasioned by the absence of her parents. (laughs) I was like, she she just got pissed up. (laughs) She just got peed up and took her clothes off. (laughs) (laughs) So yeah, like it was, yeah. That's classic though, isn't it? That's classic oppression. Like, oh, you're showing sexual freedom, so you must be have something wrong with you. Yeah, exactly. So another thing that everyone seemed to be doing that horrified everyone was that they reappropriated the Mexican national flag, um, which was obviously seen as a symbol of rejecting the ruling party. Um, they, I think they replaced the eagle and the serpent with the, the peace sign or something. And obviously mm. there were strict laws in place at the time which prohibited this. Um, So this was seen in Mexico as, like, really scandalous. Um, So, yeah, it was really strange that, like, because, as I'll talk about later, the the government were sort of involved in giving them this platform, but then they didn't anticipate how huge it would be. Yeah. Um, And, yeah, I'll I'll, I'll save that for in a minute because it is quite interesting um, as to see, like, what their involvement was. So... It was obviously this space for Mexicans to be free. Um, there was this. There was a quote from someone in from the US who went to the festival who said that days after the event, people would walk around Mexico City just flashing peace signs at each other. It was like a secret way of communicating with everyone that you'd been to the festival. Right. So it's obviously this really powerful like yeah. moment. Um, so, yeah, so the reappropriation of the flag was scandalous. The nudity wasn't acceptable, but no one was hurt. There was no, like, uprising. Nothing really happened, but the backlash was huge. And this, so this part of it is what makes me think that the government did, they knew what they were doing when they let it happen. Mm. Because I kind of feel like it was a really clever way of co-opting this counterculture. Because they yeah. sort of knew that it was rising. They knew that it was like a genuine threat to the establishment because of how popular it was becoming. So they gave them this platform and then they, they sort of knew that it would get a little bit out of hand and they would use these images of like the nudists, um, right. the, the stuff with the flag, just to try and turn like the public against them. Wow. Do you see what I mean? That's cr- yeah, yeah, yeah. That's pretty... Um... I don't know, it's quite intense and manipulative. Yeah, I mean, so there's lots of there's loads of theories um, about this yeah. as to, to why this happened, because there's lots of evidence. Like, there's good reason to suspect that the regime knew about the festival, so they permitted it to go forward, 
Um, some people who attended suspected that it was a government setup. So there was rumors. There was rumors that like the army were waiting for them, which they were, but like nothing happened. Um, right. Loads of people at the end of the festival were stranded and couldn't get home. But the president ordered three hundred school buses to send to collect them. So like they, wow. they, it's like they knew what was yeah. going to happen. Um, another it's kind stuff- of like yeah, it's sort of like they sponsored it and then. Um, criticized it afterwards yeah so right? it's like did not- they did they not realize how big it was going to be or did they know exactly what was going to happen and then used it against them kind of thing yeah it's it's really unclear as to sort of so um yeah other stuff was really weird too like there were drugs distributed at the festival which the army were there to prevent but they like didn't they didn't intervene and there was even rumors that the army were distributing drugs themselves Wow. So it kind of makes me think that it was a bit of a government setup. Yeah. Um, so they so, could... they, so they're they're sort of like encouraging antisocial behaviour so yeah. that they can accuse this movement to, of of being that, right? Exactly. So they can co opt it and then kill it. Yeah. Publicly yeah. kill it so that they can get the, the rest of the sort of public on mm. side. Um because rock music, I guess it, it it on that level it can it is a way for people to organise themselves isn't it yeah of course against the dominant music is powerful yeah Yeah. um but yeah so the backlash it was swift and immediate um and it had a it had serious repercussions on the entire mexican rock movement so the festival went live on radio juvenated i think it was called which was a mexico city station and then transmission was abruptly cut off by the government censors due to foul language um the djs were fined and imprisoned um, wow. There was an anti-Avarando rally organised by the new youth who claimed that they were like the real true youth of Mexico but because they were patriotic. Mm. Um, oh, sorry. <laughs> and would never do, you know, do that to the flag, for example. Yeah. Um, and then the Attorney General's office launched an investigation into the legality of the concert and, ser- and a search for those who were considered, you know, responsible for what had happened. Yeah. Which was strange because obviously, like the government had give, given permission for this to happen in the first place. Yeah, um, there were really serious consequences for the musicians. So, the production and distribution of La Under Chicana were targeted by the regime. So, any song or image related to the festival was prohibited. A memo mm. was circulated to all radio stations in the capital, suggesting that they don't make reference to the festival or play anything to do with Mexican rock. Um, There were six hours of film recorded, but that never reached the public. So I don't know what happened to that. But then two underground films did emerge um, later, which I think, I'm not sure if, I think there's some footage from that on on YouTube. Um, But I'm not, I'm not sure. Um, if, if there if there is, it'd be good to try and find it and put a link to it or something. Yeah, I'll have a look afterwards. I think that was in one of those documentaries on it that I was talking about. It's in Spanish, but it's just good to see the footage. Yeah, for sure. Um, so a lot of the transnationals prior to the festival were moving in the direction of promoting Mexican rock outside of the country. So Polydor geared up for a compilation album featuring like studio versions of the songs performed yeah. at the festival but they cut loose native rock contracts like no and no one was interested in challenging the government on this because it just wasn't going to make them enough money they it, right. there was no point putting up a fight basically so they decided not to go ahead with it 
Um, then a memo was sent to every record company saying abstain from producing music interpreted at Avarando at the suggestion of the authorities at the Department of Interior Affairs. So it was wow. like they shut it down on like all levels, basically. It's crazy. So they sort of like gave it a platform to get, um, you know, evidence of, you know, people involved in it doing something wrong and yeah. being antisocial and this sort of thing. Yeah. And then use that to completely censor the whole thing. Yeah, exactly. That That's my theory anyway. That's crazy. Yeah. It, so- yeah, it sounds like that's definitely what happened, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, it, it definitely sounds that way. Like, but it just seems like such an elaborate plan. <laughs> I know, it, that's what I thought. It just seems like I couldn't decide whether they sort of genuinely didn't realise how popular yeah. this movement was or whether they it was intentional yeah i don't I, know it's a, it's a, it's a bit of a confusing story isn't it because i thought the point was like the way it started out it's like it sounded like they knew it was super popular and they wanted to show that in the same way as woodstock right to use that as sort of positive propaganda yeah. for mexico right that's yeah. how it sort of sounded at the start yeah um and now it's like yeah, now it's turned to something completely different. It's really odd, isn't it? The whole story is yeah. really strange. Um, really strange. Yeah, so like no live soundtrack of the festival ever appeared. The magazine that I mentioned earlier, the Mexican Rolling Stone, um, that was forced to shut down um, because the editor faced threats of physical harm from the government. So he ceased publication. And then all live, all live performances were prohibited. There was a scheduled wow. concert at the National Auditorium in Mexico City and that, that was forced to cancel. So like live music was completely prohibited after that. Like it, it all was a, live mu- like all live music I or think, only live music of like Mexican rock. It said live performances. I I assumed that they meant this the um Mexican rock. Okay. But yeah. I'll have to double check. Still that. that's but still, yeah. Crazy. So yeah. Um but obviously there was, you know, a response to that. So there was um, a, an organisation called Rock on Wheels mm. who um, were created in response to that. Um, and they, they were like mobile pickup trucks loaded with musicians that cruised the streets looking for available spots. To, so they'd set up their equipment, they'd perform their set really quickly and then yeah. they'd vanish when they heard <laughs> like the, the police were, were onto them, wow. which I thought was great. And it made me think like, I wonder if stuff's like that's happening now in lockdown that we don't know about. <laughs> Maybe, yeah, I don't know. Because there's all those illegal raves, aren't yeah. there? So but that's then there's people the... doing like incognito, like running around in, in a van, jumping out, playing a set and jumping back in. It, 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 I, bet, I bet there are. When, when you were first describing that, I was imagining that they were like, playing in the back of a pickup truck just like driving around yeah. and I was gonna say I was gonna say that that's like low-key my dream to like <laughs> play play like on top of like a moving vehicle <laughs> that'd be really cool but yeah, yeah. How, how cool was that so they used to yeah sneak around the streets looking for little spots yeah. where they could set up and play like a super quick set and then just disappear what I love about that is like I don't know at the moment we're in this place where like we're really stressed about you know, the hit that that music and culture and live music and all of that is taking during the the pandemic, right? But it's the reality of of situations like that that just show that music and artists will always find a way. Yeah, 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 definitely. You know, somehow or other. 
um, at the end of the day, we're creative people and, and we will find a way. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah, definitely. Um, yeah, so like the idea that rock was like completely extinct after that is a little bit of a myth because there were, um, there were apparently, again, I'm not sure how accurate this figure is, like you were saying earlier with the, the Woodstock numbers, but it says there were around 150 rock groups performing in Mexico City around this time. I assume they were all like underground, you know, secret yeah. performances. Um, but only a fraction of these made it to recording studios. Um, so it, it had a massive effect on Mexican rock yeah. music. Um so there were a couple of concerts that took place afterwards. So in 1972, there was a festival. Um, and in 1975, I think there was a three-day concert that took place at the same site, I think. But then like permission for that was granted based on certain restrictions. So it had to be a limited local population. Um, it was not allowed to turn into a rock festival. Or whatever that means. How, I was going to say, how do you how do you define like? That at what the, point does it become a rock? I festival? know that's nuts, isn't it? So that was the second condition, um, and then the third one was no interviews were to be given to press prior to the event. Mm. So I assume that was so you know the the word didn't spread like it did before, and it you know sure. got out of hand. And all, yeah, and I suppose so. Also, you can't publicize your sort of potentially anti-establishment exactly. message, right? Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, I thought it was a really, really interesting moment in like Mexican music history that I'd never, never even heard of. The book chapter goes on to talk about the rise of uh, like Latin American protest songs, which is interesting in itself. But that's probably for mm. uh, probably for another episode. But yeah, so that yeah. was sort of came after after um, the the Mexican you know counterculture movement. Yeah. But yeah. So I just thought it was a really fascinating story because I'm not sure what was going on, like sort of what was going on behind the scenes with the government. And yeah, definitely. Um, yeah, I feel very. I'm left with a sense of intrigue. I feel. Yeah, me too. Um, I'd like to find out a bit more about this. Yeah, I'd like to find out a bit more about it. Um, and it's also just interesting to make that the parallel, right, of the reality of what it's like to have a counterculture in in the US or, or the UK and, and the sort of the certain level of freedom yeah. we're allowed in that to challenge our government and to challenge the establishment without it being completely shut down yeah. in the way that, that it is in other countries and was in, in this example in Mexico. Yeah. Although it is very confused by the fact that they seem to support it initially. Yeah, <laughs> they yeah shut exactly. It down, yeah. Which is all just a little bit confusing. Uh, as to what they were trying to do whether they were just clueless I, like, I feel like there is a possibility they were just really yeah clueless. yeah me too but and they thought and they went oh this is popular people like this we can use this to you know put ourselves on a level with the rest of the world sort of thing yeah um I definitely but, think there was an element of that but then later actually listened to it and or somebody went you realize that they're like talking shit about you yeah <laughs> do you know what I mean yeah. like um and questioning you know the, the status quo um that then made them you know maybe they were past a point where they could just shut it shut the festival down so then they, it turned this more manipulative like yeah can we use it to our advantage yeah well there, there are two camps really some think that it's it was they were just clueless as yeah to the power of that movement and some think that it was a deliberate attempt to co-opt it and I think mm. both are like 
I don't know. They're both sort of valid theories, aren't they? In their own way. Yeah, they're both they're both valid. Neither paint the government in a very no, good light. No, <laughs> no. It's yeah. It's really interesting, and like, it was interesting. It was it was more intriguing to me that because I couldn't find anything on it. Yeah, for sure. So I was like really desperate to to know what happened. So I'm going to look a bit deeper into this and try and figure out what went on. But yeah. So yeah. How did you how did you like come across it at all as a thing? Uh I can't um I don't know. I think I went I think I went onto uh the Wikipedia page on counterculture and it was there cuz I wanted to do mentioned. something that was not non-western. Yeah, for sure. And it yeah, there was lots that I could talk about, but this seemed like the most interesting one. Yeah, really interesting. It's always nice to have that like non-Western mm-hmm. perspective um, thrown into the into the conversation because we do tend to just look through a very Western worldview, don't we? We do, and like you said, I thought it was so interesting because like, it, it obviously it does make you realise that the amount of freedom that you have um, in, yeah, like, totally. in lots of ways. Yeah, definitely. definitely. But it just also shows what an actual genuine threat to the establishment these rock movements can be. And how powerful they are. Yeah, definitely. Like you should never underestimate the power that, that music can have, especially when it comes to um, sort of getting a message across to the community and, you know, moving people and community and, and creating a movement in, in that sense. There's not many other things that are quite as powerful mm-hmm. in, you know, sort of, I suppose, just raising awareness and bringing people on side, you know, yeah. even if, the songs themselves don't, you know, enact actual political change within themselves, like in and of themselves, right? Yeah. That they create the movement and spread awareness in a way that nothing else can really. Yeah, and it's a way it's a way of energizing people and organizing people as well. Um, yeah, exactly. It's like when we talked about Felicuti before and the yeah. Cambodian rock scene, and it's yeah, it just reminded me of that, which is kind of why I wanted to talk about it as well. Yeah, I mean, you only have to look at, I mean, take, you know, the the political aspect out of it and just look at the the number of people that gather together for festivals in yeah. stadiums to watch certain artists and everything. It just shows um, the power that they will that they wield, and especially yeah. with um, with social media now. You know, I feel like every artist that's got in those like top positions that, you know, they fill stadiums like the biggest artists in the world have such a responsibility because they have such a platform for what they say goes out to so many people and influences so many people yeah. um, in a way that is actually really powerful. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, and I think that's a good, really good example of that sort of thing. But yes, so there you go, Keza. Mexican rock. Amazing. I know, a whole new world, whole <laughs> new world that I now need to delve into and learn more about. Have you yeah. got any... Um, any like examples of artists that are like a good place to start to like you know, investigate that world? While you while you were talking about Woodstock, I was thinking, oh, I didn't do that, but I'll put something together and and put it in the show notes because um, yeah, yeah, put something in the in the show notes that are like a few like key artists like yeah. that would be a good place to start to yeah. to look into that world because I reckon that um, I would be interested to, and I'm sure a lot of other people would as well. Yeah, definitely, I'll sort that out. So uh, we are coming towards the end of. Um, yet another episode i suppose two keys we are um so if you've got any suggestions of stories that you want to hear about or if you're a band with some awesome music that you think that you know we should be hearing and playing let us know 
Or yeah. if you know a band that you think are brilliant and that we should be playing, um, let us know so we can check them out as well. Um, you can get in touch with us at rockpoprambles at gmail.com. And I feel like I said that weird, so I might say it again. Rockpoprambles at gmail.com. Um, or on our socials, you can find us at Bug Eye Music on Facebook and Instagram and Bug Eye Band on Twitter. It would have been nice of us if we'd kept it all the same, but we didn't. <laughs> so that's what so, it is. There we go. Um, and uh, also, we have some amazing people and listeners um, who are our patrons on Patreon, um, where we put lots of um, exclusive uh, content on there for you. Um, it kind of makes you part of the of the Bug Eye family, if you like, and you'll be <laughs> the first to hear about everything. So right now, I do believe that we are giving um, an exclusive first chance to hear our remixes. We are indeed. Because um, we're going to be releasing some super awesome remixes uh, that some really amazing people have done for us soon of some songs from our album. So if you want to be the very first people ever to hear them, and I do believe the first one is already on there, um, then go and uh, check out our Patreon page and um, yeah, consider becoming a part of that because it's it's super cool. And the people that contribute on there um, are amazing and uh, you know make it a lot easier for us to do what we do, basically. Yeah, some of those remixes sound great, don't they? Well, they all do, yeah. they're brilliant. I'm very excited for, for everyone to get to hear the remixes. Me too. But yeah, if you want to be the first, head over to Patreon. Otherwise, you will just have to wait. <laughs> um, so I reckon we uh, should finish off the show with a, a last bit of new music. Yes. So I've got some of our favourites to play, um, which is Berries, our good friends. Yep. Amazing band. Excellent band. Um and their new single, Copy, which was released last week on the 22nd of January. Um, so they said about the song, it's about imitation and how we are programmed by society to try and live up to other people's expectations of happiness and how unhealthy, self-critical and obsessive this way of, of existing can be. Uh, which I have to say is something I've been thinking about a lot recently. Is it because and got having all that a lot time of time to think. Yeah. So it feels like a very relevant uh, song to me right now. So um, you can find them on Facebook and Instagram at Berries Band and on Twitter at Berries Band UK. Um, and we'll include links to all this stuff in the show notes as well and for Swine Tax too. Um, so yeah, I'm going to leave you with the amazing Berries with Copy. Over and out. <laughs> Wow.